no lag at all, huh, from the time change. It's good to see you all here. Um, I'm going to go ahead and begin our time, and uh, uh, we will go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Uh, thank you that we can come here together on this day, and thank you that we can come to your word and learn and grow. We pray that we would. We ask that you'd give us uh, understanding of your word so that we can obey and please you. We pray that you'd help us to know of your grace and your mercy toward us and to be encouraged by what Christ has done. We pray that our faith in him would grow and increase. And we pray that you would be honored, you would be pleased by uh, our time here together this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, okay, well, we are going to uh, take a one-week break from the class on rest uh, that... Philip has been teaching appropriately so because you got less rest last night probably than you would in a normal week. So we're just going to go ahead and hit on that. Uh, he is, uh, he's not here this morning, so he'll be back next week uh, and we'll resume that. This morning what I want to do is just to go to uh, Philippians chapter 2 and spend a few minutes considering some uh, examples of faithful ministry. And I just want to, uh, to look at this as... The Apostle Paul lays out for us some pictures of what it looks like to uh, adopt the heart and the attitude of Jesus Christ when it comes to ministering to one another. So Philippians chapter 2, I want to start reading in verse 17 and read through the end of the chapter. Philippians 2, uh, 17 is where we'll start. And he says this, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. <clears throat> but I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him. And not on him only but also on me. So that I, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly. So that when you see him again you may rejoice. And I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Uh, if you look over in the next chapter, in chapter 3, verse 17, you have this verse. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Um, Paul calls upon the Philippians to uh, follow after himself. To look after the pattern that he is setting with regard to the gospel. And to adopt it 
themselves. And not only to adopt uh, the pattern that he sets, but also to look at other people who are doing what he does. And to follow after them also. Observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. He is saying this uh, in chapter 3 after talking about the need to, uh, to live a life that accords with the, the uh, trust in Christ for your righteousness, not trying to have righteousness according to the law or according to the flesh. And he says this before he warns against people who are not interested in the things of the gospel, but they, uh, they walk according to the flesh. Verse 18 says, For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, and who set their minds on earthly things. But he says there are those that are to be emulated. Uh, there are those who do set a kind of pattern that is worthy of following. And back in chapter 2, we have several examples of exactly that kind of person. Uh, in verses 17 and 18, it is Paul himself, uh, in addition to the Philippians to some degree, also putting themselves uh, forward as examples that would be worthy of at least uh, our, our own following. And then in verses 19 to 24, he sets forth Timothy. And then in verses 25, he speaks about Epaphroditus. And even with regard to the latter, he says in verses 29 and 30, um, specifically, hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ. Uh, this is someone that is worthy of being emulated. He is someone that is worthy of high esteem. And so we are to look upon people like this and say, what is it that makes them uh, the kind of person who we should follow after? And how can we then adapt the traits that these people have uh, as we seek to serve Christ and seek to serve others for the sake of the gospel? Now, Paul's uh, whole basis for everything that he's doing in the book of Philippians is, in fact, that gospel. It is the gospel of Christ. It is the gospel that, uh, that speaks of his death and his resurrection. It's the gospel that gives salvation by faith alone and uh, the free gift of God. And he highlights this in chapter 3, verse 9. He says, That I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Um, he is concerned in the book of Philippians for the progress of the gospel, and he assumes that the Philippians will as well. This is what frames everything. So it's not just that they're friends. It's not just that they're willing to serve other people, but everything is rooted in the gospel. Everything. Their entire ministry, what makes someone a worthy servant, um, what makes someone worthy to be followed, is all rooted in do they understand and proclaim and serve in light of the gospel that actually was given to the apostles from Jesus Christ. And that's where we're supposed to go as well. Um, with that said, there are some things that I want to highlight about each one of these, uh, each one of these men as examples that we can follow. And uh, I hope that you'll see these things as we go along as well. So I want to start with the apostle Paul himself. Uh, Paul as an example. And in verses 17 and 18, he speaks about his own attitude toward ministry for the sake of the gospel. And he says, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. All right, so what he's talking about here, uh, let's think about this for a moment. When you hear a drink offering, what is that and what comes to mind? What is a drink offering? Okay, Old Testament made provision for it, yep. Okay. And uh, what's, when you 
would you, uh, when you are pouring out a drink offering, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Sacrificing, that's right, that's right. He, uh, he mentions it's a drink offering, it's a sacrifice which would be upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, uh, the Philippians. Does anyone know what the Philippians, uh, what their sacrifice and service was? Any ideas? They were uh, partners together with the gospel, with Paul for the gospel. So, for example, in chapter 1, verse 7, it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. Um, he mentions in verse 12, he wants them to know that his circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Uh, he, he understands that they have this mentality. And at the end of the book, in chapter 4, verse 15, he says, You yourselves know, also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica... You sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. And then he goes on to say, but I've received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Paul is uh, writing the book of Philippians in at least partial response to uh, them supporting him as a missionary. And in this case, he was a missionary in Rome. Um, he had not gone to Rome 100% of his own accord. He was under arrest and had been for now probably close to four years, if not longer. Uh, but that wasn't always the case. And when he went to Philippi and the church was founded in Macedonia in the um, uh, probably early, uh, the late 40s or so, uh, some 15 years earlier, when he left there, the Philippians had helped him out. He got, um, he got run out of town place after place. And then he went down and uh, he even ended up in Corinth where he had to, um, he had to work at first and then some guys came, some of his ministry partners came, and they showed up, and guess what? They had some funds in hand, and the Philippians had sent that to him so that he could now give himself uh, fully to the ministry of the word. We at least presume this is the case because uh, they arrived from Macedonia, and then he immediately stopped having to work, and he was able to, uh, to give himself full-time to the ministry of the gospel of preaching. Uh, so anyway, what you have here is a church that had been very involved with wanting to... Um, give of themselves for the extension of the gospel for a very long time. And Paul recognizes that, and he writes this letter in part to not only commend them for that, but also to thank them for that. Um, so they were gospel-minded people, and when Paul is himself serving, he's, he is picturing himself as someone who is being offered along with them. They are giving of themselves. And when Paul says that he is being poured out as a drink offering, perhaps he is. Uh, he is viewing himself as this is the complement to that. It wouldn't have been just a drink offering alone, but there is the sacrifice of the other parts or the other elements of a sacrifice that would have then been coupled with this drink offering. And Paul says, look, you all are serving. If I am going to be poured out as this drink offering, and even if I myself am about to die in this case, then that's okay. So here's the, the circumstances is uh, being poured out as a drink offering potentially, 
But what is his attitude as he is doing this? What are verses 17 and 18? Philippians 2, 17 and 18. What is his attitude? It's joy. It's joy. Um, how long has Paul been in prison? What did I mention earlier? Close to four years. He's been taken um, from Jerusalem to Rome. He, on the way there, was in uh, some pretty rough places with no explanation. He was on a ship, a prison ship that was shipwrecked. Uh, you can read about all of that in Acts 22 through 28. All of that takes place between the time he left Jerusalem and the time that he gets here to write Philippians chapter 2. So um, Paul has gone through some hard circumstances, and yet he's rejoicing. Why is he rejoicing? What? Yeah, yeah, the ministry of the gospel is going forward, right? This is happening, this is happening uh, despite his circumstances. In fact, it is happening um, because of his bad circumstances. So Philippians 1, he says, uh, verse 13... My imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. So, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So Paul is able to look at his circumstances and say, you know, I, I wouldn't choose in a vacuum to be in prison rather than to not. But he also recognizes what this is doing. And he's able to rejoice at at the gospel going forth. So in verse 18, what then? Only then in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. So he's, he's thrilled about this. Um, what does this say about his joy and the source of his joy? Yeah, yeah, it's not tied to personal circumstances. Uh, because whatever is going on with the gospel is bigger than him. It's bigger than what's taking place in his own life. And he is willing, uh, he is willing to be poured out for the sake of other people hearing and believing and then growing in the gospel. Yeah. So his, uh, it, basically what it is is that joy comes from the gospel. For him, joy comes from the gospel. And it comes from um, his own personal faith in the gospel. It comes from seeing other people uh, in the gospel, uh, believe the gospel. It comes from other people persevering and other people who are actually uh, involved in the work. But fundamentally, he finds joy in, uh, in the gospel itself and believing it and knowing what he has coming in the future because of it, regardless of exactly the degree of work that's going on. So he can rejoice in the salvation that he has uh, because, of, because of everything that God has given him in Christ. Um, if you were going to list the things that can give you joy in the gospel, tell me, what would some of those things be? What are some of the gospel uh, privileges and realities that would give you that joy? Forgiveness. Yeah, forgiveness of sins. No longer held against us. Yeah, what else? Yeah, yeah, the promise that we will be with him. One day everything is going to be right. Yeah, we'll be with Christ for good. What else? 
Yeah, we have the Holy Spirit. That's right. Yep, the Holy Spirit resides within us. Yeah, what a cause of joy. What else? Patrick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, that we, we know that the work that he has started, he's going to complete. Yeah. Yeah, what else? Yeah, the unity with other believers through the gospel. And, and here is Paul, and he's not really with many of them physically at that time, but he finds joy in the fellowship with them even from a distance because he knows and he has heard. Uh, this, this is part of the joy that um, uh, is going to go. We'll talk about this more once we get to verse 19 and talk about the other two guys. But yeah, yeah, just this, the fellowship, the unity, the, the life that we have with other believers. It's a great privilege, and it brings, it brings joy regardless of circumstances. Yeah. Anything else? Yes. He works all things out for our good. Yeah, knowing that he is doing that is, is wonderful. Um, and then, of course, we can... So th- these are things that are the case basically for everybody, regardless of circumstances. Um, on top of that, we should look for ways where the gospel is going forth we should be thankful where people have believed we should be thankful where we see spiritual fruit and growth a lot of joy is going to come when we look around and we actually are thankful for the things that we can see god doing when we pause to look uh, rather than complaining about our own circumstances or just thinking about how life is so hard uh, or you know this person doesn't believe the gospel or this person doesn't want to uh, doesn't want to respond to the scriptures when we look around and see the ones and the people that do. And when we see the people that have believed the gospel, this ought to bring us joy. So we can look at, uh, we can look at what he says, for example, in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Or 4.4, 4, where he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. We have so much cause for rejoicing. And, uh, and we should constantly think about those things that are going to bring that joy. Uh, it is a command for us to rejoice. It is a command to follow after Paul's example here. Uh, I mentioned three one and four four as places where this is actually uh, this is commanded of us to do. But it's not as if he just tells us to change our attitude. There are things that we know that we've just talked about that should give us this joy and that we dwell upon if we want to actually bring this about. So he wants joy to be carried out. That's why he says in verse eighteen, "You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy." With me, He wants the Philippian church to rejoice. This is why he is telling them so many of these things. Okay, um, let's consider next the example of Timothy. Timothy, uh, starting in verse 19, let me just give you a little bit of the circumstances here. He says, but I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. Um, he goes down to verse 23. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. So again, here Paul is awaiting trial. He, is, uh, he has Timothy with him. He no longer has Epaphroditus with him. He'll explain that here in a moment. Uh, Timothy, of course, was his constant ministry companion. He had picked him up shortly before he went to Philippi. In fact, in Acts chapter 16, he took Timothy along, and it was not much later than that at all that he went through Asia Minor and went over to Macedonia and started the Philippian church. So Timothy has been with him for some uh, 15 years on and off. He has sometimes sent Timothy places on his own. Sometimes he's stayed with Timothy. And uh, whatever the case, he had earned quite a bit of trust with him. 
when Paul is here uh, with Timothy at the moment, it looks like that he is kind of waiting to see the answer to the trial. What is going to be the verdict for Paul? Paul has been arrested on charges which really are basically um, unsubstantiated. They, he was more or less arrested for his own safety and then put on trial on trumped up charges of stirring up the people and being a pest and you know trying to direct people to break the law. And of course, the book of Acts tells us in great detail how he did not do that at all, but in fact was very peaceful and how uh, this, this new religion that was spreading was actually uh, very much a law-abiding one that found favor in the sight of people who were concerned about keeping the law. Uh, here, Timothy is with Paul, and it seems like he wants him there with him. He is useful to him, and he doesn't want to release him yet. He wants to wait until he sees how things go with him. Paul is confident that he's going to be vindicated, that he will be uh, found not guilty on these charges. He expects that he is going to, um, as chapter 1 says, remain on in the flesh for the sake of the Philippians and perhaps others. So that he is living in this world rather than departing and being with Christ by death. And so he says in verse 24, I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. So he expects that he's going to see what the results are, then send Timothy, and then himself follow, and at some point he'll come to Philippi also. But he does say he wants to send Timothy to them. He wants to. He, he's keeping him for now because he thinks it's the best thing to do, but he wants to send Timothy. Um, what are the reasons why that he wants to send Timothy, according to these verses, verses 19 to 22? Why does Paul want to send Timothy? Yeah, he is genuinely concerned for the Philippians. Um, what about verse 19? He wants to be encouraged, right? He wants to find out more. This is, this is sort of the direct reason. But why does he send Timothy as opposed to other people? Well, verse 20, it's an amazing thing. I, I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Think about that statement for a second. No one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. How long had Paul been a Christian and serving in the gospel at this point? Close to three decades. Um, he clearly thinks highly of Epaphroditus, who has already gone back. He was from Philippi, at least at least in the, the near term. We don't necessarily know beyond that, but um, it's not that there are not some other faithful people out there in various places. He clearly thinks that the whole Philippian church basically is filled with people who are worthy of commendation. He even says in 3.17, as I mentioned, that there are people who walk according to the pattern you have in us. But he's highlighting something in verse 20. He's just saying it's hard to find someone who has this attitude, who is genuinely concerned for your welfare. Why is that? Verse 21, for they all seek after what? Their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. They all seek after their own interests. Um, think about what an indictment that is. And just a, a statement of, I don't know if it's frustration on Paul's part, but perhaps he could be. 
when he looks around and says, why is it so hard to find someone who just actually cares about Christians and who isn't in this for something else? They all seek after their own interest. What do you think that might look like? What would be someone seeking after their own interests who would be involved in, you know, this kind of thing that Paul could potentially send? They might be willing, but they seek after their own interests and he would view them as disqualified for such a task. What would that look like? How would he know that? Yep, yep, so you're just concerned about kind of your own little uh, thing that's connected with you and your own sphere of influence and your own little kingdom, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. rather than what God is doing in the bigger picture. Yep, what else, what would that look like? Seeking your own interests. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. You know, the amazing thing about that is they seem to be preaching a correct gospel because he says in verse 18, what then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Paul uh, always, whenever the gospel was being corrupted and perverted, he would not say things like that. He would say things like, don't listen to them. Um, I'm really upset that this is happening and this message is being preached. He doesn't do that here. But he does say the people that are doing this are doing this out of selfishness. So they are taking the actual accurate message of the gospel, at least at that moment that's what they're preaching, but they're doing it out of selfish ambition. Yeah. So they're looking for what? What do they want out of this? What's that? Yep, money, pat on the back, boosting their own ego. Yep, yep, lots of things like that. So they're, they're not looking, they're not doing this because they love other Christians. Okay, they're doing this because they view this as the means to some other end. Um, and what this is going to do is when hardship actually strikes, um, it's going to make them abandon ship. It's like the... Uh, the hireling in John chapter 10 when Jesus is talking about the, himself as the good shepherd. And he says, look, when, when the robber comes, when somebody comes after them, they're, they're out of there. Right? They're not going to stick around and give up themselves for that. But that's not the attitude that we need to adopt. We need to be people who uh, Paul could say of us that we are genuinely concerned for the welfare of one another. We don't seek after our own interests Rather, we seek after the interests of Christ Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that you don't have uh, the certain meaning of the word interests, like some of you are probably interested in certain subjects. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like certain things that you would read about or that you would uh, watch a show about or something. That's not really what this is about. It's seeking after your own benefits, seeking after what you think matters in the world rather than what Christ says matters. And if you do this, then you're going to be tempted to see uh, other people as the means to the end of making your own life better. And when people get in your way, then you're no longer going to be ministering to them. You're going to be ministering to yourself and they get caught up and uh, they are the ones that are the victims from that. So you either neglect them or 
Uh, if they are in your way, you do worse than that. So here is Timothy, and he is unique. And I think we ought to just take away from this, at least on one point, that uh, even if you know, none of us are Timothy, none of us uh, serve like he did and uh, are the kind of direct companion to an apostle like he was, we still can adopt his attitude. And we can say, okay, we, we are cultivating a genuine care for what Jesus cares about. And that in particular means not only the spread of the gospel, but for the, the welfare of other Christians. We care about them. We want their good. We're willing to give up things of our own uh, comfort and interest for their sake. What is it going to take to do that? How can you cultivate that? Biblically and practically, what can you do to cultivate um, the interest of Jesus Christ and within that, a welfare, a concern for the welfare of other believers? How can you do that? Yeah, yeah, getting to know them, yeah, yeah. You're going to have a, it's going to be easier to be concerned for them if they're not just faceless or they're not just nameless faces or even faceless, you know, just people walking around. But yeah, get to know them, yep. How else can you do this? Pray. Mm-hmm. God, for, yep, pray for God to change your heart. Mm-hmm. I would even add as you pray for them, you're going to be more concerned for the things that matter for their sake. Yeah. What else can you do? Okay. Okay. Not not sinning to push the spirit away. So you're saying like uh, keeping clear conscience maybe or something along those lines? Oh, don't, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Yeah, Ephesians 4 refers to that. Don't, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Um, yeah, kind of in the context, I think, um, maybe to your point of how people treat one another. Um, yeah, verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a lot of behaviors that would do that. He talks about being angry and stealing and unwholesome words and bitterness and wrath and those kinds of things. Um, so, yeah, kind of selfish, ungodly, interpersonal behavior. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Yep, First Peter 3 talks about that point, right? Husbands, make sure that you live with your wives in an understanding way. And he goes on and yes, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Yeah, yeah. So that our own personal uh, conduct toward other people is going to influence our, our prayers uh, in some way. Good. Okay, what else can you do to cultivate a genuine concern for the welfare of other Christians? Yep, purposing to be with them. Uh, I mean, how about just even understanding biblically who they are with relationship to you, with relationship to Christ and with relationship to one another? Um, 
you know, we, the phrase brethren is used very often in the New Testament of, of fellow believers. And this speaks of a very close familial bond. That's not a blood uh, relationship, but it's supposed to be very, very close. And that's just not the way that we might necessarily naturally view other Christians. We might, you know, okay, that's people that I go to church with. You know, or these are people that are other fellow believers. And yeah, I know one day I'll be in heaven with them. But kind of here, like, I don't know. It's really kind of awkward and not sure that I want to relate to them. Or I don't know how. Uh, but just adopting that mindset that we are, that we are uh, close. That we are fellow believers in Christ. That we're in Christ together. And then just understanding the whole picture of the body. And the First Corinthians 12 talks about the body of Christ. The members having the same care for one another. Um, understanding the distinction between Christians and people who are not Christians, not so that you can mistreat unbelieving people by any means, but just recognizing that there is a, um, that there is a particular love that the Lord Jesus himself says that he has for the sheep and that we ought to, uh, that we ought to adopt his same attitude as well. Um, we ought to look at our Lord and seek to serve him. So adopting, when we seek after not our own interests, but those of Christ Jesus, that means that we let him direct what we think is important. We let him set our priorities. And what this means is that uh, we're going to give a lot of our attention proportionately to the spread of the gospel and to the, uh, the building up in the faith of those who have believed it. So, which then also means uh, ministry to believers within the church. So here he says, uh, I want to... I want to be encouraged when I learn about your condition and I'm sending Timothy to find out and he is someone who is to be commended as trustworthy. Uh, he says, I know in verse 22, you know of his proven worth. They are aware he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. So it's become very clear that Timothy is somebody who is appropriately um, fit for this job. Uh, just real quick as well, before we look at the last example in verse 20, he says, I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Who will be concerned for your welfare. Uh, that word there in Philippians 2.20. Uh, what does Paul say about our own, about us being concerned besides this verse? What does he tell us? Should we be concerned? Just in general? Those of you that have your uh, Bible tools or you Greek experts will know that um, this is a word that is used in a number of places. Um, one place where the idea comes up is in chapter 4, and he says in verse 6, be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. Matthew chapter 6, he says that we are not supposed to be anxious we're not supposed to be anxious. Matthew 6.25, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life. So how is it right that Timothy is concerned or anxious or worried in this case? I mean, he's commending him for this. How is this, how is that right? I thought we're not supposed to be anxious or worried or concerned. What's the difference? Concerned for others, okay. Yep, and then uh, what kind of concern? Yeah, concern for spiritual welfare rather than worldly things. Um, and where the concern is sort of framed by you are 
you're asking God for help, um, you, are, you are rightly caring about something, and you're seeking after God's kingdom and his righteousness, not seeking after, um, you know, just earthly things that God, that you already knows that you need. Um, you're not just worried and fretting about all your circumstances like Philippians 4 would talk about. But yeah, you're actually concerned. So there's this sort of, uh, this, this, I don't want to call it a balance, but we, we have both these things at the same time where we recognize that there are certain ways that we should not be anxious and worried and concerned because if we do, then we're failing to trust God and to make our needs known to him. Whereas on the other side, we can't just be apathetic about everything. To be not anxious doesn't mean that you are a stoic person who has no emotions and doesn't care about anything. What it means is that you care about the right things and you frame that care by entrusting your desires and your needs to God uh, where you have them. And then redirecting them where they're wrong, where you're worried about the wrong things. So yeah, Timothy was genuinely concerned. He was, uh, he was rightly concerned and he was concerned with sincerity for the welfare of the Philippians. All right, um, anything else on Timothy before we move on and talk about this last example of Epaphroditus? Yeah, uh, Tammy, yeah. Yeah, so he did what he, where he had the opportunity to do something about it. He actually, he took action and he did something. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't just sitting around and just kind of worrying. Yeah. Patrick, what were you? Yeah, and I think that's, uh, it's good that you mentioned that because, look, like Paul, I mean, when we want to talk about the certainty of believers' ultimate salvation, where do we go? What passages do we go to? You know, Romans 8 would be a common one. Um, there might be some other places, but one of the most common is Philippians 1.6. Being confident, he says, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So if Paul's so confident about that, why is he sending Timothy? Why is he worried? Why is Timothy worried? No, you're good. You're going to be saved. You know, you're good to the end. Paul understood the, uh, the need for instrumentality, for human instruments to be used in the, uh, the divine work of spiritual preservation, in the perseverance of the saints, uh, the involvement of other people. He was not fatalistic. Um, he did not say, well, God is sovereign and therefore everything is just going to work out. He didn't say that God keeps people and protects people and once a person is saved, they're saved and I don't even have to think about that anymore. He didn't do any of that. He is someone who understood uh, the fact of God protecting and preserving people m as much as anyone. He's the one he wrote about it in a number of places and he's confident, but that doesn't stop him from saying, okay, I've got to do the work. As long as someone is in this world, I need to help them. I need to build them. And he, he uh, seeks after, for example, in verse, chapter 1, verse 25, 
um, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. He didn't think that the only thing that mattered was someone is saved and they're going to heaven. He knew that in this life that there are things that matter with regard to that. And uh, he knew that he was involved in, in helping their stability and their joy and their growth in the gospel. So, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, Patrick, because this, is, this, uh, this concern takes place and this ministry takes place um, despite or really in the, in the framework of understanding uh, the work of God overall in a person's life. So we do the work uh, for other people and we don't just write it off to, well, you know, God's sovereign, so it doesn't really matter what we do. It doesn't matter how that works. Um, we don't put, pit his sovereignty against our own labor and against our faithfulness and against our, our care for other people. Uh, there is a right way to be concerned and to be uh, even anxious, if you want to translate the word that way, not that you would fret or be fearful and not trust the Lord, but that you would, that you would actually care. And that takes place uh, even though we know what God has said about the ultimate fate of believers. So uh, verse 25 through 30 talks about Epaphroditus. He says, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. So he identifies him with connection to two parties. He serves alongside Paul. He is his brother uh, in the gospel, his fellow worker, his fellow soldier. So he is laboring. He is in the battle. He's in the gospel fight um, alongside Paul and with Paul. He sees himself as very closely connected with this man. But at the same time, he identifies him as the Philippians' messenger and minister to his needs. So a lot of what Paul knows about the Philippian church is coming from Epaphroditus, who has just come to Paul pretty recently. And when he came to him, he came to minister to Paul's need, in particular, very likely carrying the offering, the, uh, the gift that they were sending to him, which would have been really, really helpful for someone who is under house arrest having to provide for himself and to rent out his own place while he awaited trial in the uh, capital of Rome. So here he comes and he is uh, on behalf of the Philippian church acting and then all of a sudden the Philippians get this, uh, <laughs> here's Epaphroditus showing back up at the church pretty soon uh, back in Philippi and he's got a letter in his hand from Paul and he's going, what, why are you here? I thought we sent you to serve Paul. And Paul acknowledges that, but he says, look, I needed to send him back. I wanted you to have him back. And he tells them why, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. He confirms the report. Indeed, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me so that I would have, uh, not have sorrow upon sorrow. And therefore, I've sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. Now, this gets pretty complex in terms of what he's thinking and how Paul is processing all of this. But basically, he says, he was sick. You heard about it. You were worried about him. He heard that you were worried. And uh, I said, all right, well, I'm going to, because he's longing for you all and he wants you to know that he is fine now, I'm going to send him back even if he could be useful to me because I'm concerned about your joy and I don't want you to be so worried about him and now you can bring your report about me as well, which includes the personal report and then anything that's written in the letter to the Philippians. So then he says, if he comes back with a good report about not only himself, but also where things stand with Paul, then 
they are going to be less concerned and it's going to stabilize, uh, stabilize his uh, way of thinking about them where he says in verse 28, I may be less concerned about you because it's going to bring them joy. So it's kind of this whole complex set of things. But what you have here is everybody is looking out for each other in this. It's just really beautiful. It's Paul is concerned about the Philippians. He's concerned about Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is concerned about Paul. That's why he goes to him. And he's concerned about the Philippian church. And then they are worried about Paul. And they love Epaphroditus. And they had heard that he was sick. So everybody all around is just, they, they love one another. And all the actions that are taken here in this entire thing are entirely selfless, selfless on everyone's part. They're, uh, they're looking for this. Paul could have said, no, I, you know, I really want to keep him here. I mean, I know that you need him, but, you know, I just kind of need some, some backup. And he was willing to do that if that was best, but he, he was willing to send him. And he was willing to give up what might have been a personal blessing to him for the sake of the other parties. And this is the attitude that we should cultivate deeply, where we're saying, I'm not seeking after my own interests. I'm not seeking out what is best for me. I'm seeking what is best for others, which is exactly the attitude of who, fundamentally. Who is our ultimate example in that? Yeah, Jesus Christ. He said it already in this very chapter. Verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he connects it with the humility of Christ. Yeah, this is the way that we're to think. To adopt the mindset of Christ means that you're just always looking out for others. You're always willing to give up whatever is yours and whatever privileges are yours and whatever desires are yours if that will bring benefit to other people and in particular gospel benefit to them. This is the way that we ought to think about it. So this is, this is the way all of them were and Epaphroditus is uh, an example of this. It says in verse 30, he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Now this is Interesting, it, you know, that the language kind of sounds, I would say the deficiency language here sounds a little bit more negative in the rendering than maybe the idea is. Um, it was lacking, it was just incomplete. So he wasn't saying, you know, you Philippians, you guys are like, you're kind of deficient in your service, especially as compared to other places. Chapter 4 makes it pretty clear that that's not the case. It's just that there was an opportunity that they had not met, and their service was incomplete until, they, until uh, Epaphroditus got there, and they fulfilled this opportunity that they had. They had already been in the practice of helping Paul. He even said more than once they had sent a gift for his needs. They had been unique in doing that. So this is very much a, a faithful church, and yet he says there was something that you still had the opportunity to do, you wanted to do, and um, Epaphroditus was the instrument to bring that. And when he brought this, uh, he risked his life to do this. And he came close to death. Uh, we don't really know exactly what risks all would have been involved. But certainly he got sick in the process. And this is probably what Paul is thinking about. Um, what is it that you see about Epaphroditus that is worthy of imitation? Besides what I've mentioned already. Anything you see about him? Anything on uh, his attitude and the way that Paul thinks about him? Or some observations or comments you have on Epaphroditus? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
Yeah, he is, fellow worker and fellow soldier. Yeah, and he's not doing the exact same thing as Paul. Even Timothy's not doing the exact same thing as Paul, but Paul views him as in the fight with him, right? Yeah, yeah, we, we don't need to say, well, I'm not Paul, I'm not doing this full time. I guess I'm just, uh, I'm not this. No, he, he said, this, is, this guy's in it. He's a worker, he's a soldier. We ought to view ourselves in that way and, and act in that way. Yeah, good, what else? Yeah, yeah, he was faithful, he, he had acted, he, uh, yeah, he wasn't just all talk, he said. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, and um, this, this knitted his heart together with Paul. Yep. Yeah, good, anything else on Epaphroditus? Yeah. Yeah, it would have taken weeks to travel um, from where he was to where Paul was and of course the same way back so yeah he was uh, physically he was willing to go through the physical effort he was willing to take the time who knows what he had going on back home you know what he was giving up for that but he was willing to do this yeah um, he he so prioritized the gospel that he had this concern for not only his own church but also for the for Paul and the gospel going forth. And yeah, he was willing to, to make that sacrifice, to make that effort. Yeah. So we're supposed to um, hold men like him in high regard, he says, which of course would mean that it's uh, that the example and the attitude that he has is worthy of our own emulation. Um, so we're supposed to think this way, certainly, about this but and about others, but we're supposed to uh, follow after such people as well um, so think about what prevents you from adopting these attitudes you know is it a lack of prioritization of the gospel is it a lack of uh, understanding what Jesus intends to do through the church is it a lack of thinking about other people um, not praying for them whatever it is uh, I want you to think about this and and see where it is that these pictures these examples can stick in your mind uh, as we as we wrap up here and as you go throughout your week, perhaps you can meditate upon Philippians 2 and say, where, uh, where do these people and their examples challenge me? Uh, where do they have an attitude that is more selfless or more gospel-focused than my own? Where are they willing to sacrifice and I'm not? Uh, where do they have concern for other people above themselves and I don't practice that? Um, and take these things before the Lord and confess where you need to and strive to follow after their example. Uh, let's pray together and we'll be done with our class. Father, thank you for this time today. Uh, we thank you that you have given us these, uh, these men as faithful servants, faithful examples who were eager to see the gospel go forth and to build up one another and to build up the church. Pray that you would help us to adopt the same attitude, that attitude which came from Jesus Christ, and that we would indeed be genuinely concerned for the welfare of one another and for, uh, for all people. God, we pray that you give us grace to serve in this way. We pray that you'd use the rest of this morning to strengthen and build us up in the faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.